Redeemer, um, you're catching us at the end of a series called The Story. Over the last several weeks, we've been working our way through um, the big story of the Bible. We've kind of been broken from what is our normal course of operation as we typically will open up a Bible and work through the book of the Bible with the grain of Scripture, kind of chopping it up verse by verse. Uh, over the last several weeks, we've looked at the big story of the Bible, and so as opposed to going with the grain of Scripture, we've kind of gone across the grain of Scripture, looking at certain themes that come up and that emerge for us. So the first week, we saw how God, in the very beginning, He creates everything out of nothing, and He does so by making everything good. In other words, everything worked properly. It functioned like it should. There was no brokenness. There was no devastation. There was no disease. And in the beginning, there was no death. But then you see in the second act, or as it kind of unfolds, the drama of Scripture unfolds, you see sin enters into the world through the the willful choice of our first parents, and the fall takes place. And as it does, everything begins to get unraveled. Everything begins to erode. Everything that was once good is now um, no longer, it's not that it got erased, but it got defaced in the fall. And so things get distorted, and we saw how sin is not just the breaking of God's rules, but sin at its fundamental level is what we would call spiritual adultery, that it's loving something more than we love God. It's giving our affection and allegiance, our love and loyalty to something or someone other than God. And as we love something or someone other than God, more than Him, things begin to break down in our lives and we no longer reflect the image of God properly as God designed us and created us. When we exchange our desires for God's good design, we're committing spiritual adultery or infidelity. And we trace that all throughout the Old Testament and even a little bit into the New a couple of weeks ago. And so that's kind of the second act of the story of the Bible. And the third act is whenever you see God working, because God doesn't leave us to our, own, to our sin, He doesn't leave us to our rebellion. Whenever we fall, when our first parents fall in the garden, God expels them from the garden, but before He does, He makes provision for them by slaughtering animals and covering them with skins. In other words, God covers their shame, He covers their nakedness, He covers their rebellion Himself. And he provides sufficient coverings for them as he sends them out. But not only does he do that, but he makes a promise to them that that things would not always be as they are. And he continues those promises through the lines of the Old Testament as he makes promises to Noah, as he makes promises to Abraham, as he makes a promise to, to Moses, as he makes a promise to David. All these covenants that God enacts in the Old Testament, we said last week, are ultimately pointing us toward the, the coming of a person in order to be the remedy for sin, because the remedy for sin is not policies. God didn't just drop a policy manual lap in our, a policy manual for life in our lap and say, "Good luck figuring it out." Rather, what He did was He sent a person who would establish a new covenant, a new covenant that would be established or enacted in His own blood. Jesus says. As he sits there at the, at, the, at the Passover feast, at the Last Supper, and he breaks the bread and speaks of his body being broken. As he passes the wine and speaks of his blood being shed and poured out for the inauguration or establishment of a new covenant. That he would make a new promise for the forgiveness of sins. So God doesn't send a policy manual. He sends a person as the remedy for sin. And he sends him as our example and as our substitute. So he shows us what life looks like in relationship to God and how it's to be lived and what it looks like in relationship to others. In other words, how we live in relationship to our Father and how we live in relationship to our brothers and sisters. But not only is there our example, but he's also our substitute because when you look at his example, you go, man, that, there's no way I could ever live that way. 
And that's why he came to live it for you and for me as our substitute, the one who would live in our place and die in our place and rise from the grave. So that's where the story left off, right? The big story of the Bible. The Bible is not a bunch of collected, isolated stories that have been brought together all with little morals and principles for how to live. But it's one story of God creating, humanity rebelling, God rescuing and redeeming. And then it's ultimately leading us to the final scene of, or the final act of the Bible, which we would say is the, 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 the God coming to renew all things or coming to restore all things. But in between there, there's, a, there's another act. We might say there's five acts to the Bible, right? You got creation, fall, redemption, and then you got renewal on the back end, but you got this time in between the coming of Christ and God coming to renew everything. You got this time in between called the church age. And that's kind of where we are right now. The time in between. God coming in Christ to redeem and rescue. To save us from Satan's sin and death. And then him coming back one day to renew everything and set everything right. So that everything looks and works and feels and functions like it should. And we find ourselves in this church age. A helpful way to kind of get my mind around what's going on right now. Um, is, is an author named N.T. Wright. He's a biblical scholar, and he uses an illustration. He speaks of how, if, if you could just take yourself, take your mind into a place and just imagine, just imagine that there was a, a, a lost Shakespearean play that's now been discovered. And so somebody was cleaning out the closet after, you know, grandma died and doing the estate sale, and they open up a trunk, and here's this Shakespearean manuscript that's never seen the light of day since it was penned. And so it gets brought out of the trunk, and as they begin to read the pages of the Shakespearean manuscript, they find Act 1, Scene 1, Scene 2, Scene 3, Act 2, and Act 3, and Act 4. And you get the final act of the play as well, but there's this act in between where it seems like some of the pages have been lost. You may have the kind of the very beginning of that first act, or of that act, you know, act five, but you got the very beginning of it, but you don't have the rest of the scenes that have been written out. And so what happens is they, they gather all these Shakespearean experts, all the, the, the play writers and authors and all the actors, and they sit them down in a room and they say, here's the first four acts, here's the final act, and here's this act that we have little bits and pieces of, but we don't have the rest of the story. So your task is now to come up with, based on what you know has already transpired in the story, and what you know will transpire at end of the story and now to work out the rest of that script in your lives and for yourself and so they get they, they come up and they sit down and they begin to pen and write and, and think about everything they know about Shakespeare everything they know about what he's written in other places and what he's written in that play and what's coming at the end and they they write for themselves that fifth act that fifth act and if you think about the church age that's where we find ourselves right now we find ourselves in that kind of unwritten act, so to speak, as, story, as the story continues to unfold. We know where it's headed, and we're going to look at that this morning. But in order for us right, to know what God is doing here and now, we, all, we have to know where, we're, where, where the end is going to be, where we're headed, but we also have to know where we've come from. So you've got to know those two things as we kind of figure out what God is up to in the world right now. What's he doing right now in kind of this unwritten act there's a church planting organization called Acts 29. Now, there's no, there, there aren't 29 chapters in the book of Acts. There's only 28. 
But their, their vision is that they would be a part of seeing churches planted both nationally and internationally and seeing the 29th chapter of the book of Acts written across the pages of human history. And that's where we find ourselves today. We find ourselves in the 29th chapter of Acts and God is still working and he's still moving and he's still doing stuff. But what is he doing? And how do we play a part of it? We want to take a look at that this morning as we continue to unfold this story, as we look at um, two things, right? Two things you've got to know if you're going to be a part of what God is doing here and now in this particular act of the story. Right? You've got to know where it's headed and you've got to know where it's come from. So we're going to look at a little bit of both of those this morning as we kind of close this series up together. And so what is happening in the 29th chapter of Acts, or this fifth act in this play as, as the story unfolds, is this, is that those Shakespearean authors and playwrights and, and actors, and you and I, are being pushed forward by the things that we've seen happen already. In other words, we're being, we're being pushed forward by the things we've seen happen already. If you're, if you, anybody ever had a, a car that just broke down on them in the middle of the road or like in the driveway and you get in, maybe some of you have driven those cars before where you get in and you turn the key, it's kind of like a crapshoot, you really don't know what's going to happen, right? You just turn the key going, man, I think it's going to start today. I think it's going to start. Like a little train, like I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. Right? You've had those cars before. So if your car is broken down, you maybe run out of gas on the side of the road or, or, some, or you know, your radiator bursts and all the coolant falls out or your transmission um, gasket you know, blows and all your transmission fluid goes running down the highway. Been there, done that. Right? Unless you're coasting down a hill, right, you need someone. There's one, one of two ways you can move that vehicle to a safe place. And one of the ways to do that is to get behind it and push it. Right? It's broken down, it's stuck, you get behind it and you push it. Now hopefully you've got some good friends that you can call who can come over and help you push it. Right? The same people you might call when you want to move. So they come over and they help you push that thing um, into a place where it's safe. Or maybe there's you know, a good Samaritan who comes by and helps you get out. But you can get behind it and you can push it. You can push it forward. And listen, this is what's happening right now during the church age is that God's people from every tribe and every language and every race and every nation and every people group on the face of the earth are being propelled forward, are being pushed forward by what has happened in history. So you can be pushed forward by history. Right? And if we're going to be a part of what God's doing in the church age, we must be pushed forward by history. In other words, what's happened back here, what has been, has to shape what is in our lives today. It has to shape what is in our lives today. Um, the, the committee, uh, contemporary committee, on uh, testimony committee of the Christian Reformed Church uh, penned a, a little statement called, Our World Belongs to God. And in that they say this. They say, following the apostles, the church is sent. In other words, coming after the apostles, history pushing you forward, the church is sent. Sent with the gospel of the kingdom to make disciples of all nations. To feed the hungry. To proclaim the assurance that in the name of Christ there is forgiveness of sin and new life for all who repent and believe. To tell the news that our world belongs to God. In a world estranged from God, where millions face confusing choices, this mission is central to our being. For we announce... We announce the one name that saves. We rejoice that the Spirit is working to see our mission, or waking, I'm sorry, waking us to see our mission in God's world. The rule of Jesus Christ covers the whole world. 
to follow this Lord is to serve him everywhere without fitting in as lights in the darkness, as salt in a spoiling world. So it captures a beautiful picture of what God is doing now as history is pushing the church forward, pushing God's people forward in this age. He says, what's going on is that we, like the apostles, which the apostles means sent ones, right? Um, like the apostles, we've been sent as well. We've been sent to bring the good news of Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, and return to peoples who are estranged from God, who are separated from him, to make disciples of those peoples, to care for their spiritual needs, to feed the hungry, to put roofs over people's heads, right? to care for their physical needs as well, to proclaim the assurance that in the name of Christ and only in the name of Christ is new life possible, this forgiveness of sins get dispensed, to tell the world, everyone, everywhere, that the world belongs to God. It is his world. And in a world that is estranged from him, to show them how he is able to put the, them and the world back together. So we live as lights in the darkness, as salt in a spoiling world, following Jesus without fitting in. Now, I've described it to you, I've illustrated it to you, but I hadn't shown it to you in the Bible yet, so you shouldn't believe me. If you've got a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. The book of Acts is like the second volume of Luke's gospel. He writes the gospel about what Jesus has done in his incarnation, in his crucifixion, in his resurrection. And you get to the end of Luke's gospel and Luke opens up volume two of his gospel account which carries the story forward into the church age. As you got people who are now coming to faith in Jesus and Jesus is going, ascending into the heavens with, to be with his father and he's sending his church out on the face of the earth. And in Acts chapter one, in the very beginning, as all the disciples are gathered around Jesus, they have a question for him. And in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, it reads as following. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven." So on the minds of, of Jesus' disciples, whenever they gather around him, Jesus has been resurrected. He's not yet ascended. He's still with them. It's right before his ascension. They say, Jesus, is this the time when you're going to kick the Romans out? Is this the time when we're going to get our uh, autonomy and independence back? Is this the time whenever you're going to reestablish the kingdom? Is this the time when you're going to make everything work like it should again? Is this the time when we're going to rule over ourselves once more? Is this the time like, that this is what's dominating their thoughts? And Jesus looks at him and he says, listen, listen, those are things that God, that God is sovereign over and that God will work out and that God is moving forward, but those are not the things that you're to be concerned with right now. He says, my mission for you is not to go lock yourself in a room, create charts, 
right, that are all color-coded, um, that, that, that are like the size of this wall back here, that have all these things that you're tracing through about what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen, where it's going to happen, and what's going to happen before it, and what's going to happen after it. So that's not where you need to invest all your energy and your time, he says, because there's something coming, he says. When I ascend to my Father, I'm going to pour out the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's going to empower you, he says, to be my witnesses, to be my witnesses. Where? Locally, regionally, nationally, and internationally across the face of the globe. The Spirit's going to empower you to be my witnesses. Now what does it mean to be a witness? You can be a witness in at least one of two ways, can't you? You can be a legal witness. And so you might be called in a court case, in a court of law, and you put up on the stand to testify to the evidence of the case. Like you saw this happen or you didn't see this happen. Or he said this, she said that, right? You can go back and say, like, what had happened was, you know, all these things. You know, so you can be a, 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 um, a witness in a legal case. But you can also be a witness to historical matters. Things that have transpired in history, right? Some of you in the room, right, you're not old enough to remember some of the great things or some of the monumental shifts in history in uh, the 20th century, but some of your grandparents were witnesses to that. Some of your grandparents were witnesses to some of the world wars. Some of your grandparents were witnesses to the great conflict. Some of your grandparents were witnesses. I know it's hard to believe, right? But they were witnesses to the advent of the internet. Some of your parents were witnesses to the arrival of the internet, right? They saw these great shifts these great conflicts, these great advances in technology. They were witnesses to those things. And they can report what they saw, what life was like before a smartphone. <laughs> and what life is like now after a smartphone. Probably diminished quality, I would imagine. Right? So they can report these things. You can be a witness in a legal sense or in a historical sense. And what Jesus is speaking of here, when he says, the Spirit will empower you, to be my witnesses. He's saying to report everything that you've seen me do. Everything that you heard me say. The actions that you saw me accomplish. You're going to tell others about that. You're going to report that to them. You're going to be witnesses of, the, of, of who I was and what I did. I'm ascending to the Father. The Spirit's coming. He's going to empower you to tell the story over and over and over and over again to people that live around you, to the people who are in the next town over from you, to the people who are in the region next to that, to the people who are up above the Mediterranean Sea, to the people who are over to the tip of Spain and over into India and China, and the people who are up there in Sweden, the people who are down there in the Sudan, all around you, the ends of the earth in their day. By the way, this would have been the ends of the earth in their day as well. <laughs> I didn't even imagine this place existing in their day and time. To the ends of the earth be my witnesses. But what would they testify to? What would they witness about? Listen, here is one of the ways history pushes us forward as witnesses of what Jesus has done. A few weeks ago we saw in Genesis 1 that whenever God makes everything, he makes it all good and everything works properly like a well-oiled machine. Right? There's no friction, there's no devastation, there's no death, there's no disease, there's no destruction, there's no rifts relationally. Everything from the plant and animal world to the human beings that existed worked 
fluidly, harmoniously, peacefully. And whenever God promises to one day restore everything, what he is not promising to do is just evacuate lots of souls off the earth into heaven. To evacuate all of the immaterial parts of our body and to some, go somewhere out there. But when God promises to save, when Jesus comes to save, he doesn't just come to save us Right? He, doesn't just come, he does come as our substitute. He does come to save us from the consequences and effects of our sin. He does come to reunite us with God. But he comes to set everything right. Everything. And so that's why, it's one of the reasons when you look at Jesus' miracles, right? If Jesus just wanted to prove his identity, what could he have done? What could he have done? He could have like, he could have like flown Right, and done flybys like to all the crowds, like, like Top Gun, right? He could have done flybys. He could have levitated out above the sea and caused all the salt to come out of it and then gone and sprinkled it on their food and they all feasted and died of a heart attack. Right? He, could have, he could have suspended all the natural order. He could have leapt tall buildings in a single bound. He could have melted rocks with laser beams coming out of his eyes. He could have breathed like with his breath like ice that would freeze someone. He'd be like Superman, right? He could fly, shoot laser beams, breathe ice, and just leap over buildings. He could have done that if he just wanted to prove his identity. I am God. But what does he do? He doesn't do any of those things. What does he do? He begins to take those things that are broken and set them right. He begins to take those things that are diseased and heal them. He begins to take those things that are dysfunctional and repair them. And so when John the Baptist, listen, when John the Baptist, he's probably imprisoned at this point in Jesus' ministry. And in Luke chapter 7, he's, sitting in, he's probably sitting in prison. And I want you to hear what happens. So he can't go see Jesus himself. He can't go find Jesus and ask him this question. So he takes two of his disciples and he sends them out. In Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 22, the text reads like this. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? Shall we look for another? Can you imagine John sitting in prison going, man, I've baptized this guy. I've said that he's the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. Here I am sitting in prison for having countered, contradicted the ruling governing authorities of the day, about to be beheaded. Is it worth it? Right? Are you really the dude that we're waiting for? And so he sends these disciples to Jesus in verse 20, and when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, verse 21, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many whom were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor, they have the good news preached to them. So Jesus doesn't go, watch this, I'm going to freeze that dude over there. What does he do? He begins to take everything that's broken and repair it and begin to put it back together. He fulfills prophecy 
Isaiah chapter 35, whenever Isaiah, God through Isaiah is writing about a time in which God's kingdom will begin to break into human history. The fullness of his rule and reign will begin to kind of leak into human history. And he says, in that day, in Isaiah 35, 5-7, he says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. Those things that were parched, those things that were devastated, those things that had no life in them will now begin to flourish and grow. He says, where the haunt of jackals, the burning shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Everything that had begun, been, been eroding, God is going to restore in the breaking in of his kingdom. And so when John's disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, are you the guy or should we look for somebody else, right? Is it Tim down the street? Jesus says, go and tell him what you've seen. Go and tell them what you've seen. Eyes that didn't work, now working. Ears that could not hear, now hearing. Legs that couldn't move, now leaping. Tongues that could not speak, now singing. Go tell them what you've seen. See, when Jesus comes, he comes to restore everything. What he is doing is he's causing blind eyes to see, deaf ears to work, lame, lame limbs to work, the mute to speak, the, and he preaches the good news to the poor. In other words, he didn't go over to the rich and kind of pander to them and say, listen, if you guys give me a little bit of money, I'll just kind of say whatever you want me to say. No, he goes to those who can do nothing for him or anyone else, and he gives them the good news that God has come to remedy your situation. God has come to restore you, to set things right. He treats people with justice and equity and fairness. He doesn't pander to the rich, but he spends time with the poor. He levels out the playing field of human relationships. He begins to undo the brokenness of the fall. Not just evacuate souls into heaven, but to restore this world that have become so crippled by sin. So that history pushes us forward. What Jesus did in his first advent, it pushes us forward. And so as a church, our primary mission is to make disciples and to teach people and to instruct people and to guide people and to share the good news of Christ's finished work on their behalf for them at the cross to reunite them with God. That is our primary mission and our primary work, but it is not our only work. There is also, if we're to follow after Jesus' footsteps, and be a part of the continuation of his mission as it unfolds. History's pushing us forward to tell people who are estranged from God that God has bridged the gap. But it's also to participate in the kind of work that Jesus was participating in. And so when you clothe those who are naked, when you give a drink to those who are thirsty, when you put a roof over a family who is homeless, When you put food in the bellies of those who are hungry, you are participating in the renewal of all things. It's pushing you forward. 
History's pushing you forward. This is why Jesus, in Matthew's gospel, toward the end of Matthew's gospel, when he talks about the final judgment, he says, listen, there's going to be a day in which there's going to be people separated. There's going to be sheep and goats. And the division between them, the division between them, as, they, as they're separated out, some are going to come into the kingdom and enjoy the fullness of God for all of eternity, and some will be banished from Him forever. He said, but the difference... He says, I'm going to look at them one day, and I'm going to say, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. When I was imprisoned, you didn't come and visit me. And they're going to look at me and go, well, Jesus, come on, man. We never, when did we see you in prison? When were you thirsty? And Jesus says, and I'll tell you the truth, you've done it under the least of these. You've done it under me. Because history is pushing the mission of the church forward. Reconciling men and women with God. And being a part of his restorative work across all creation. Not only is history pushing us forward as we are witnesses of all that Jesus has come to repair. But there's another way that if you're stuck, you can get unstuck. There's another way that if you're broken down, you can move forward. Not only can you get somebody behind you pushing you, but you can have somebody in front of you pulling you. You have somebody in front of you pulling you. We can be pulled forward as well. Listen, I, I cannot confirm or deny the fact that a year and a half ago, I may have backed up into um, Ryan and Andrea Wheat's uh, yard um, in a little soggy spot uh, that was there just off their driveway. Um, and as mean as my truck looks, um, it is not four-wheel drive. And so my back tires began to sink into the mud as I tried to give it gas and move forward. I wasn't going anywhere. I wasn't moving. I was just here like mud slinging all across right, their, their property. It was a glorious moment for me, by the way. So it may or may not have actually happened. I cannot confirm or deny the rumors. And so Ryan comes out of his door and he looks at me and my truck that's, uh, that may or may not have been stuck right there in the mud. And he just begins to laugh. And so he just doesn't even say anything to me. He gets in his Jeep, cranks it up, backs it out, turns it around to where the winch is facing my truck. He may or may not have hooked the winch up to my truck. And then he may or may not have pulled me out of the mud, right? He pulled me forward. So you got history behind you pushing you forward to be a part of the mission of the church that Jesus has given us. But you also have the future hope that we have pulling us forward. It's got history pushing us and hope pulling us forward. So the Bible speaks of a day that will come in which God will come to set everything right, where everything is beginning, some of those things are beginning now to be unraveled and beginning to be put right. There's a day that's coming in which everything will work exactly as it should. Everything will function properly. Our hearts will work like they should and no longer be chasing after vain idols. Our hearts will work like they should and no longer be loving anything or anyone more than God. And it'll begin, all, all of our human relationships will work like they should. Our vertical relationship with God will work like it should. That day is coming. And so hope, the hope of that day is pulling us forward as the history of what's already been accomplished is pushing us. Now listen, many of you have probably heard the old saying, right? 
that you're too heavenly minded to be of any earthly what? Maybe you haven't. You're too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. Of any earthly good. But if you understand what the Bible teaches about what's coming one day in the future, then you would not say you're too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good, but you would say if you are of no earthly good, then you're not heavenly minded enough. You're not heavenly minded enough. Because the future is not shaping your present. Hope for the future is not pulling you forward in how you conduct yourself here and now. Leslie Newbegin is a missiologist. In other words, he studies cultures and how the gospel interacts and interfaces in those cultures. And he said this, he said, Meaningful action in history is possible only when there is some vision of a future goal. In other words, only whenever you have an intended and desired effect in the future will it begin to shape the results in the present. Listen, you can see it on like you can see it on television everywhere, right? Two places. You can see it every time spring training rolls around. You see all those guys put on their catcher's gear and get on the mound. And they throw workouts and they take batting practice and they run sprints, right? Why? Why do they labor in that capacity in the in the spring months? Because in October they want to be playing for the World Ser- as World Series champions. They want to hold up that trophy at the end of the season. So they're in their their goal or their future vision, the f- vision of their future shapes their present so what they want to be doing in October shapes what they're doing in February and March and April right the intended goal shapes the present that's so it's so true it's so true history pushes us as a part of the mission hope pulls us as a part of this mission so the question then becomes what does that future look like that should shape our present in revelation chapter 19 we're told that jesus will return that he will return and then if you push forward it gives a very vivid description of him coming back on a horse with uh, eyes flame with fire and a sword coming out of his mouth to judge the nations everyone who's rebelled against him will finally fully um, be defeated And, and, and and subsequent to his return the Bible describes the, the breaking of a new dawn, of a new age, of a new era. And in Revelation chapter 21, we're told that God will make all things new. He will make all things new. Now, that doesn't mean He'll make some things new. It means He will make all things new. Everything that is dysfunctional will be functional. Everything that is broken will be fixed. Listen to how he describes it in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 5. It says, Then I saw a new heaven. John sees this vision. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. There's a day that is coming in which every heartache is going to be healed. 
There's a day that is coming in which every tear that has ever been shed will be wiped away. There's a day that is coming in which every ache of aging, can I get an amen? (laughs) And the most devastating pains of diseases that ravage your body will be no more. That day is coming in which everything will be set right. And the hope of that day is pulling us forward. One of the things I find most intriguing about John's description there is this. He says there will be no more sea. Now at first glance it's a little bit sad for me. I can't fish anymore. No bodies of water. But when you think about what the sea represented in the ancient world. Listen, why don't you think about living in a day and a time before sonar or radar. In other words, you're out on the water. You don't know what's beneath you. You have no idea how deep it is. You don't know what lives down there. Other than the things that have gotten caught in your nets. And there's no radar, so you don't know when a storm is rolling in over the horizon and over the hills until it's upon you sometimes. And so, and, and, when, and when the, probably the, one of the most frequent manners of transportation to and from points without the, throughout the Roman Empire was across the Mediterranean Sea on ships and boats for trade and transport. And so you're out there on the sea and the, a storm comes, bellows over the hills and begins to erupt right on top of you and the waves begin to rise and they become tumultuous, threatening to flip the ship and you don't know what's beneath you. You have no idea how deep it is. You don't really even know, have a good idea sometimes of maybe where you are because you get so turned around in the storm. See, in the ancient world, the sea represented, for those ancient peoples, chaos and turbulence. And so when John says, I saw this new heaven and this new earth, and it was void of any chaos. Where there was chaos, there was now order. And where there was turbulence, there is now peace. Everything works like it should. Everything is harmonious, John says. That is a beautiful picture. That is a hope to wait for. For the day in which there is no longer any marital strife in your relationships. The day in which there is no longer a rebellious child under your roof. The day in which there is no longer men and women in authority who lord it over others to use them and oppress them for their own benefit and gain. There's no longer a day. There's no longer a day in which everything is breaking down. But everything is beautiful, harmonious, perfect, glorious. That is the hope that's pulling us forward. To be a part of seeing that day as it is in heaven on earth. So not only is history pushing us forward, but hope is pulling us forward. Andy Minio in a song, he's a Christian hip-hop artist, um, so when I, when I cite him, it's not going to be nearly as cool or sound nearly as hip um, as he is hop. And so, um, so just bear with me, okay? But this is what he says in a song on um, his album called Heroes for Sale. One of the last tracks on that song, on that album, is called Death Has Died. And this is what he says. He says, one day, my God's going to crack the sky. He's going to bottle up every tear that we ever cried. Bring truth to every lie. Justice for every crime. All our shame will be gone and we'll never have to hide. No more broken hearts. No more broken homes. No more locking doors. No more cops patrolling. No abusive words or abusive touches. 
No more cancerous cells that will take our loved ones. No more hungry kids. No more natural disaster. No child will ever have to ask where his dad is. No funerals where we wear all black. Because death will be dead and will lock the casket. He captures in, that, in a very cool way. A beautiful picture of our hope. A beautiful picture of our hope. That's pulling us forward. So listen, here's the question. We're gonna land the plane. You've heard me say that before, but we really will, right? Here's the question. Is what's coming in the future, is what will be and what has been, is that shaping what is in your life? Is all the holiness and beauty and glory of Christ in all of his majesty returning as a conquering king, not as a suffering servant, is that shaping your obedience to Jesus now? Is what has been shaping what is to the degree that you're a part of his mission of bringing restoration to everything that has been broken, everything that doesn't work right in this world? Is history and hope, are they shaping your today? Let me just talk about one area, if they are, that will, it will change. It will drastically revolutionize, and that's the area of your professional life. Listen, some of you work inside the home, I get that, and you work harder than most of us who work outside of it. But many of us in this room, we have professional careers and vocational opportunities outside. And many of us struggle going, how do I connect what I do 45 hours a week to what's coming in the future or what has happened in history? In his book called Kingdom Professionals, Kingdom Professionals, um, Gary Ginter writes these words. He says, kingdom professionals do not define success in terms of money, job, or status. They do not seek to maximize their income or their security or their status or to advance their careers. Instead, they seek to maximize their impact on the people and places to which God has called them. They measure success by their contribution to what God is up to in, the knee, in, in their neck of the woods. They see themselves as successful to the extent that they are doing what God has called them to do in the place to which he has led them in such a manner that their giftedness can be well utilized. Nothing less will suffice. Not the shallowness of status, not the um, illusions of wealth, not the corrosive effects of power. What matters to kingdom professionals is that there is congruence between their daily lives and the further inbreaking of God's kingdom where they live and work. In other words, they want to see their professional lives here and now, what they do 45, 50, 55 hours a week, so shaped by the future coming of Christ and the rule and reign of his kingdom so that the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters the sea they're waiting for that to such a degree hope is pulling them forward that here and now money and success and power and influence are just like rolling off their backs like water off of a duck because what matters to them is how they're treating people not how they're climbing the ladder what matters to them is the investment they're making in the lives of others are they treating people with equity in the workplace? Are they treating people with justice 
at, at, at the schools in which they teach? Are they serving as mediators in relationships in those capacities where things do get sideways at times? Are they investing in people, not questing and lusting and thirsting after the next rung on the ladder? Because at that rung, their status will be raised and their significance will be heightened and their financial benefits will increase. I'm going to keep climbing and climbing and climbing no matter what I have to do to anyone who stands in my way. I'll climb over them, around them, stab them in the back to get ahead, gossip about them, tear them down so that I can move forward. Listen, those of you who work in the workplace, there are lots of places like that where the values of this world have so shaped and distorted and twisted how people conduct themselves professionally. Will you lie to get ahead? Will you conceal the truth to climb the rung? Or will it be integrity and justice and honor? Because things will be set right that way one day and so you're having that sucked back into the present here and now in your professional life. And you're not just taking another job because it offers a better pay package and benefit plan but you're taking another job because there's an opportunity there. There's an opportunity there to press value into people. To people. Who don't live under your roof. If our lives were really shaped by what is to come, that would look different. I'll close with this. David's going to come and lead us in one final song as we dismiss this morning. That's the end of the story. That's where it's all headed. But in the end, in the end, there's a dark side to the end as well. Because in the end, not everyone will enjoy the fullness of God's glory and the radiance of His beauty. There will be some whose name is not, are not written in the Lamb's book of life and there will be some who are turned aside into weeping and gnashing of teeth. God is a loving God. He's also a just God. And for those who spend their lives in this life resisting, rebelling, refusing His grace, God will hand them over to that for all the ages to come. And that may be some of you in the room this morning. Some of you may find yourself in a point in your life where you're resisting, rebelling, and refusing the grace of God day after day after day after day. If that's you this morning, I want to appeal to you. There's a glorious hope for the future. And what Christ has done in history can begin to put things back together in your life. If you will let go of control. If you'll let go of control. It's called repentance. And if you've never done that, if God's never given you the grace to do that, I'd love to visit with you about that this morning. I'll be in the back of the room as we sing together.